together. Just a reminder in the description of this video, there's a link to a form that you can fill out to let us know that you've been with us today and to let us know how we might be praying, uh, as well as to connect with us to see if you might like to explore further the claims of the Lord Jesus and what it is that Christians believe about Him, about ourselves and our world uh, in a course that we call Christianity Explored. That'll happen on four Monday nights in July, uh, whether online or in person. And so if you'd like to be part of that uh, gathering of people to think about Jesus from the Bible, to ask questions and to hear what Christians believe, we'd love you to join us uh, for Christianity Explored. Let me pray for us and we'll have a look at Lamentations together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word and ask that as we reflect on it together now, that you would build us up in our faith, that we might trust you even in the darkness. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in his book from which we've stolen this series, Barry Webb writes, The garment of suffering is heavy and dark. It is a robe that sinners wear as they make their way, trembling yet hopeful, to the cross of Christ. And the book of Lamentations can teach us a whole lot about it. We can learn how to grieve as God's people who still have hope. Uh, many of us this morning are feeling fresh loss. We're feeling loss, uh, even if not significant, yet still real. The loss of a holiday break that we were looking forward to and maybe needing, the loss of extended family time together, the loss of plans with family and friends. But for many of us sitting at home this morning and even here at church, that loss pales into insignificance compared to the grief and the loss that you're already carrying around. Uh, the loss, an often hidden loss, of miscarriage the loss of moving away and changing seasons, the loss of retirement and feeling like you don't contribute, the loss of a wayward child despite all your prayers, the loss of a broken marriage and the ripples of all the smaller but significant losses that flow out of that, the loss of injury or illness, whether acute or chronic, the loss of failing in an opportunity that feels like it won't be repeated and, of course, the loss of a loved one whom you'll never see again. Lamentations reflects so many of the thoughts and the feelings that accompany those feelings of loss, the suffering, the grief. Uh, in the book of Lamentations, the ideas and the thoughts are often circular, they're repetitious, as so often is the case with grief. The confusion and the questions, they don't often land with a clear resolution as is so often the case in suffering and grief. And yet maybe a little bit different to our experience of suffering and grief. The poems of the Book of Lamentations are extremely ordered and structured. These funeral songs for God's people and God's city, there is an order that isn't typical of suffering and grief. It's as though in the chaos and the confusion of suffering, God graciously seeks to order our thoughts and our feelings to give them clear expression on our behalf. Uh, most of the way through the book of Lamentations, these poems are acrostic. 
Each line takes a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's as though we have in front of us the A to Z of suffering and grief. Where our suffering and grief are given words, they're given order, they're given expression. And importantly for us, these words are for the believer because they are directed towards God himself. And the order that gives expression to suffering and grief in these poems, it does not gloss over it with convenient solutions and it doesn't cut it short with easy and superficial answers. For most of this book, the lament of the prophet himself on behalf of the community is simply from the vantage point of the dust. And in lament, God graciously meets us in that dust. Because these cries directed to him are themselves a sign that ultimate hope has not been lost. The story is not finished. And it's here... It's here in the dust itself that God promises to still be our shepherd and to guide our hearts even through the darkest of valleys. And so three things for us to see this morning from the book of Lamentations, that we're praying in the dust, we're crying out for relief and we're holding on with hope. Praying in the dust crying out for relief and holding on with hope. Let's look back at chapter 1, verse 1, where we see, uh, to start, praying in the dust. Prophet writes, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people! How like a widow is she, who once was great among the nations! She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks, Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. It is an empty, desolate city. There is a lifeless market. There is a prayerless temple. There is an absent people now taken to Babylon to be slaves. It is utter desolation that leaves the prophet Jeremiah in the grip of despair on behalf of his nation and the destruction is so total and the grief and the agony is so gut-wrenching that all there is left to do is lament, to pray in the dust. Chapter 2 verse 10, the elders of daughter Zion sit on the ground in silence They have sprinkled dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. There is nothing to be done. There are no steps to be taken. There is no remedy at hand. The job of God's people, desperate and dispossessed, is to sit in the dust and to pray through their tears. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation like that. So often in grief and suffering, we don't know what to do next. I've had that question asked of me a number of times in agonising situations. What do we do? 
and it's so hard when the answer is nothing. There is nothing to do. There is nothing we can do. I think naturally we as people like to do things. We like solutions. And often in suffering and grief, little pieces of busyness can dull the pain or can delay the realisation of what's really happening. But the posture of lament is not taking any steps in any direction, but sitting with your head bowed, the dust of ashes on your head and under your feet. And I think this is actually a really important moment of acknowledgement. Praying in the dust is the recognition that we don't have to pretend. That when things aren't okay, that you need to acknowledge that things aren't okay. What do we do now? Nothing. We sit in the dust and by God's word we pray and cry for relief. That's our second point. We cry for relief. Chapter 2, verse 1, how the Lord has covered daughter Zion with the cloud of his anger. He's hurled down the splendor of Israel from heaven to earth. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. You see what's happening for God's people? They are under the cloud of his judgment, his anger. This grief and their suffering is of a particular kind. It is their suffering of God's judgment because of their sin. The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins, chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 12, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me, that the Lord brought on me in the day of his fierce anger. Chapter 1, verse 15, the Lord has rejected all the warriors in my midst. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young men. In his winepress, the Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah. This is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. You see, it's clear to Jeremiah and is explained in the narrative of the Old Testament that while some sin does, sorry, uh, that this particular suffering is for Israel, for Judah's particular sin. And while some sin, the Bible tells us, does bring immediate and tangible results of God's judgment in the world, more often than not, we don't have that perspective. And we're not allowed to draw that conclusion. Jesus himself told us that, didn't he? In Luke chapter 9, he says, don't equate particular suffering with particular sins. But what are we to do? When we see any kind of suffering in this world, Jesus tells us that it's a loud and clear reminder that repentance towards God and faith in his promises is necessary for anyone who would be rescued from the eternal suffering of God's just judgment. And when God is seen as the one who's very much in charge and the bringer of grief and suffering, the one in whose sovereign hands is the very suffering his people are experiencing, where are they to go for help? Where are they to find relief? Well, 
when the Lord is seen as the enemy who brings suffering, he also needs to be the rescuer who brings relief. For Jeremiah, crying out for relief, he's crying out to the God that he feels abandoned by, forsaken by, Chapter 2, verse 3, he has withdrawn his right hand at the approach of the enemy. Chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord has rejected his altar and abandoned his sanctuary. He's given the walls of her palaces into the hands of the enemy. They have raised a shout in the house of the Lord as on the day of an appointed festival. The cry for relief is one of being abandoned by God and throwing yourself on his mercy. The abandonment, the absence, the withdrawal of God's loving care is seen in the emptiness of God's city and the quietness of his temple and the destruction of his people. Has God taken his love and his care away forever? That's an understandable perspective, isn't it? And I wonder if it's one that you've shared before. Has God taken away his love and care forever? I wonder in those moments of your own suffering and feeling like God is absent, whether that's just a small and very brief taste of what God's judgment might feel like. For love and care to be abandoned, the total lack of peace, the gut-wrenching grief of permanent loss. And yet here is a gracious promise, isn't there, for those who would wear the garment of suffering and make their way trembling yet hopeful to the cross of Christ. Because what does Jesus cry as he hangs there on his cross? My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? At the cross, Jesus cries out in forsakenness by God because he takes the abandonment of God's judgment in order that with our faith in him, we can know for sure that we haven't been abandoned by God. Jesus at the cross is forsaken by God so that you never will be with your faith in him. And so that cry of relief, the cry to the God who's already poured out his judgment on the Lord Jesus and who has promised never to leave you nor forsake you, that cry for relief, surely on the lips of the person trusting in the Lord Jesus, comes with even greater expectation of an answer. So Jeremiah says, keep crying. Keep asking. The hearts of your people cry out to the Lord. Let your tears flow like a river day and night. Give yourself no relief, your eyes no rest. Arise, cry out in the night as the the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at every street corner. Cry, cry out with expectation to the Lord of your suffering. 
Uh, recently I asked someone just in passing, as you tend to do, how are you going? And their response, as often comes back, well, there's no use complaining, no one's listening. And sometimes that can be just a real throwaway line, can't it? A bit of a joke. Or it can be the real recognition that you feel unseen, that you feel unheard. But my response to that person the other day is the perspective of lamentations. Someone is listening. There is a point to complaining. God is listening. And he welcomes your complaint. In fact, in this book, he gives shape to your complaint. He lends you his words. And he encourages you to pray and to lament and to cry for relief without giving your eyes rest. And sometimes we will need the help of other Christians to keep bringing those prayers before God together. And we do so trusting that relief comes for the Christian with greater clarity and with greater hope than the extraordinary relief that we find in chapter 3. The way this book is structured, it points us to chapter 3 as not only the theological centre, but the literary centre of the book, where we find the relief of hope. And here's the remarkable thing for Jeremiah as he gets to that point of hope in chapter 3. There is relief that comes with hope, but it is not a relief that comes from a change in his circumstances, it's relief that comes from a change of mind. It's the change of mind, not the change of circumstances that Jeremiah the prophet can then hang on with hope. And so often that is true for us as well. That God calls us to hold on with hope, not by changing our circumstances, but by changing our mind. As we recall God's character, his faithfulness, his steadfast love, so clearly seen and demonstrated at the cross of the Lord Jesus. And so as we pray in the dust and as we cry for relief, with a change of mind, we can also hold on with hope. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 21. Yet... This I call to mind. Such a simple shift. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself the Lord is my portion. Therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. If you're anything like me and you've heard these words many times before, often out of context, I tend to think of God's new morning mercies in the context of the nice hot morning coffee, standing on the deck with the the sunshine of a new day, 
early sounds of birds and fresh optimism for the day ahead. But remember, Jeremiah's circumstances haven't changed. He is calling to mind the fresh mercy for a new day while he still sits in the rubble of Jerusalem. He hasn't moved from the dust. And yet it's in pouring out his soul to the Lord that he is left with this, the only indestructible thing in the universe, looking around at everything that has been stripped away from his life and the life of God's people in the city of Jerusalem. No markets, no laughter, no food, no temple. The only indestructible thing in the universe left to reflect on and to cling to is the character of God. And his eternal promises. With all the asking of why, with all the confusion of how, with all the anxiety of what if, and all the regrets of if only still lingering in his mind, the only solid place to anchor his soul is in the hope of God's unchanging character. Recalling how God first revealed himself to a newly rescued people in the book of Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, slow to anger, full of compassion. His faithful love extends generation after generation. That is where I will cling, says Jeremiah. That is where my mind will recall even in the grip of grief. And friends, for you and I, with all the asking of why and the confusion of how and the anxiety of what if and the regret of if only, the only solid place, the only indestructible anchor in the universe is in God's unchanging character demonstrated in his wrath and in his mercy which met in the death of the Lord Jesus and the resurrection that guarantees the hope of the nations that God will be faithful he will keep his promises and his day of salvation when every tear will be wiped away and where God will dwell once again with his people when he will be their shield and their eternal shepherd and will lead them by streams of living water and will refresh their souls in his presence forever, we wait. We wait for that day, knowing that it is certain and it is sure because it's guaranteed through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And so in this life, And there is nothing else to do except sit in the dust and to pray and to cry for relief. We can also hold on with hope as we entrust ourselves to him and wait for that day of his salvation. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love 
we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to my, myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. And so may we wait for you, hope in you, and seek you, O Lord our God, because of your unfailing love and your eternal faithfulness, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing again as we reflect on these truths together.